Welcome to Letter to Philippi Live, our daily teaching program going through Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're now today beginning our fifth time going through Paul's letter to Philippi, the letter to the Philippians. In this study, we started on June 1st of 2021, and yesterday we concluded the fourth time through the book of Philippians. And today we begin again, starting off with the background of the letter to the Philippians today. And then on Monday, we'll be starting up on Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, in our ongoing daily, Monday through Friday, verse-by-verse study through Paul's letter to the Philippians. So we are now uh, streaming on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. So we'll begin our time together, and then we'll go into we'll, we'll time with a word of prayer, and then we'll go into our study today as we'll be looking at the background and the writing of the letter to the Philippians in preparation for starting again on Monday, our verse-by-verse study through the book of Philippians, starting with chapter 1, verse 1. We'll begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll go into our study for today. O Lord, you are good. We thank you. We bless your holy name. We thank you for each opportunity we have, Lord, to come to you and to look into your holy words, to learn from your holy servant, Paul, and Take his words, Lord, and seek to become more and more and more like the Messiah. Be with us today, Lord, as we look at the introduction and the background of this book, to give us some insights into the writing of this letter about Paul's heart for the people of Philippi and where we're going to be going in this study, going verse by verse of this letter from your holy servant, Paul. We thank you for the Messiah who is our life, and in his holy name we pray. Amen. So again, welcome to Letter to Philippi Live. This is our daily broadcast looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians. And if you want any information about the work of Letter to Philippi, go to lettertophilippi.org. Philippi is one L, two P's, like Philippines, like the Philippines, but Philippians. Lettertophilippi.org. There you can watch past class videos. You can ask any questions on our contact form. You can leave prayer requests. I want to be praying for you. You can make a much-needed contribution to our work to keep us online, bringing you these daily teachings from the Book of Philippians on our giving page. You can read our Messianic and Jewish book reviews. We have our, our, our mission statement, what we believe and what Lettered Philippi is about. We have our statement of faith. You know, and you can see further what we believe as Messianic Jews, as followers of the, of the Messiah Yeshua, living our lives within Judaism and as faithful Jews following Yeshua, our righteous Messiah. All the information you can find at lettertophilippi.org. So we'll begin our study today looking at the background and the, the writing in the letter to the Philippians. And uh, back to our, our title page. And uh, we'll be looking here today at the background and the writing in the letter to the Philippians in preparation for our beginning again, our daily verse-by-verse study through Paul's letter to the Philippians on Monday. So we'll begin looking at uh, our opening verse we'll be looking at is actually from the book of Acts, Acts 1.8, and the words of Yeshua, our righteous Messiah. I'll put that up on full screen. We read in Acts 1.8, these are the words of Yeshua to his Talmudim, his disciples before his ascension into heaven, after his resurrection and conquering of death. And Yeshua said, 
but you will receive power when the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses both in Yerushalayim and all Yehuda and Shamron, indeed to the ends of the earth. Let me read that again. But you will receive power when the Ruach HaKodesh comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses both in Yerushalayim and in all Yehuda and Shamron, indeed to the ends of these of the earth. With these words, the mission to reach the world with the good news of the Messiah began, starting with Jerusalem and Judea, both in Israel. The message of Yeshua spread among the Jews of the land. The earliest Messianic community was a movement of Jews, with the message of Yeshua moving to the ends of the earth. The doors were opened to the Gentile world. The earliest followers of Messianic Jewish faith understood themselves as a form of Judaism. Jewish scholar of blessed memory, Yaakov Neusner, even describes such faith as one of the Judaisms of the Second Temple era. Jacob, Jacob Neusner, a, a, prominent, a prominent rabbi and, and, and prolific writer on Judaism, understood that the, the, the early Jew, Jewish follower of Yeshua could be understood as one of the Judaisms of the Second Temple era, whereas Whereas we see now Judaism is a monolithic, a monolithic faith with one one way of Judaism. There there are there is Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Reconstructionist forms of it, but it's pretty much a monotheistic, uh, basically a, a uh, uniform faith at this point. Whereas in the Second Temple period, there are many different ways you could express Judaism. There was there were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, there were the Essenes. And there were the early Yeshua followers, so you know, so Rabbi Rabbi Neusner understood that that it could be seen that the early Jewish followers of Yeshua could be considered as one of the Judaisms of the Second Temple area. Early on, debate arose in the Messianic Jewish community over Gentiles who were coming to Yeshua faith and their relationship to the Torah and Jewish practices. As the word of the Messiah came to the Gentile world, the question is, how does how are these Gentiles coming into to worship the God of Israel? Do they have to all be be circumcised and, and become become Jews, become followers of the Jewish Messiah? And this was an issue that caused much debate among the early Messianic community, as the Gentiles were coming in to the people of God. By their faith in Yeshua, but there's question by some who understood that they would also need to convert to Judaism to be fully a part of the people of God. This issue of debate in the early Messianic community became crucial in Acts 15.1 when men from Judah went to Antioch to teach the Gentile believers, you cannot be saved unless you undergo Brit Malah, under, unless you are circumcised in the manner prescribed by Moses. So we see in Acts 15, beginning of Acts 15, that there were those, those Messianic Jews from Judah who went to the Gentile believers in Antioch, the, Gent, the Gentiles who had come to faith in Yeshua, and told them they could not be saved unless they undergo Brit Malah, unless they were circumcised according to the, the pattern of Moses, and in essence, that, that they could not be saved and part of the people of God unless that they were they were converted to Judaism along with their Yeshua faith.
this teaching conflicted with Paul and Barnabas' teaching to the Gentiles and led to an important decision by the early Messianic Jewish leadership group, which later became known as the Jerusalem Council. In the Jerusalem Council, there was, there was because of this issue of whether Gentiles had to convert to Judaism to also become Yeshua followers, there came this debate and this discussion, which was known as the Jerusalem Council, which we read about in Acts 15, 6 through following, where they have the leaders from those who believe that Gentiles need to convert to Judaism, and also those like Paul and Barnabas, who believe that the Gentiles who come to faith in the God of Israel and the Messiah of Israel solely on their faith, trust in Yeshua. So there was this debate and brought together in what we call was known as the Jerusalem Council. And after hearing debate from both sides, Yaakov, James, the brother of Yeshua, the brother of Messiah Yeshua, and the leader of the Messianic community in Jerusalem, suggested the following. Therefore, my opinion is that we should, put, we should not put obstacles in the way of the Gentiles who are coming to faith. Let me, read, let me read there. I get distracted there. Therefore, my opinion is that we should not put obstacles in the way of the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled, and from blood. Let me read it again. This is the ruling that came out of the Jerusalem Council by, the, by James Yaakov, the brother of Messiah Yeshua, who was the leader of the Messianic community in in Jerusalem. And he says, therefore, my opinion is that we should not put obstacles in the ways of the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled, and from blood. Yaakov's opinion about eliminating the obstacles to circumcision, as well as full Torah observance and conversion to Judaism, for Gentiles and substituting less stringent practices resulted in the council's unanimous ruling. The council then sent a letter to read to all the Gentile communities, declaring that Gentiles did not need to convert to Judaism, nor to undergo male circumcision before becoming full members of the Messianic community and followers of Yeshua. The ruling supported two important truths that can be missed by modern scholars be they Christian or Jewish. And this is important to understand that, that, the, that there's much, much misunderstanding of the Jerusalem Council, both by Christian scholars and by Jewish scholars. And you can be seen in, in their interpretations and commentaries on, on Acts 15. But these are two important things, two important truths we need to understand from the Jerusalem Council. First, the fact that Gentile Torah observance, including circumcision, was an issue among the Messianic community demonstrated the importance of continued Torah observance and practice of Judaism by the Messianic Jews. So the first truth that we can see from the, what we have in the Jerusalem Council is that the importance of Torah observance for followers of Yeshua was a primary issue, a primary understanding of the Messianic Jews. They understood themselves as Jews, continuing to live their lives, conformed to Torah, with faith, trust in Yeshua. And this was so ingrained in their understanding 
that there were those who said that the Gentiles also would have to convert to Judaism to be followers of Yeshua. They so understood Messianic Judaism as, as a Torah-centric faith that they believed that everyone who followed Yeshua should also follow Torah because that was their practice. That was their life for Messianic Jews at this time. There was a clear understanding that Torah observance went hand in hand with Yeshua faith. They were Jews who followed Torah, who had found the Messiah of Israel. And therefore, they understood that those Gentiles coming to Yeshua faith should also conform themselves to the Torah and to circumcision, kashrut, and to living as Jews, in essence, becoming converts to Judaism along with being followers and ones who've, who've converted from paganism to Yeshua faith. If as many commentators suggest, this really ended Torah observance for all followers of Yeshua, both Jews and Gentiles, which is very common in very, very significant commentaries on, on Acts 15. They're very, very well-known scholars and, 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 uh, those who say that in this ruling, the Jerusalem Council did not only say that non-Jews did not have to follow Torah, but they said that, that the Jewish followers were also freed from Torah observance by this ruling, which is, is incorrect and, and incongruous with, with the understanding that we said that, that the fact that Torah observance was so important for the Messianic Jews, they believe that it should also be taken on by the non-Jewish followers of Yeshua show that their understanding of themselves were to be Torah-observant Jews, and their only context for understanding being a follower of Yeshua was to being a follower of Yeshua as a Jew. Therefore, the Gentiles coming to Yeshua faith must also, like them, become Jews. If the Messianic Jews themselves had already decided to abandon Torah, or if in this ruling they were abandoning the Torah, it would seem pointless and even cruel for there to be a discussion whether Gentiles were to observe Torah. If the Jews had already abandoned Torah, the Acts account, what I said would be cruel for them to, if, if the Messianic Jews had stopped following Torah, if the Messianic Jews had abandoned their, their place, their calling, their, their commitment to following God's Torah, in essence, had become had left the Jewish faith, then it would be cruel for them to for them to add this extra extra requirement for Gentiles to be fully part of the people of God and, and as the, the, the teacher said for them to be saved unless that they were were to ones to convert to Judaism. So it's incongruous to think that the that these Jews would have abandoned Torah but wanted to imply it to the non-Jews. In essence, as, as many commentators say, that this is a demonstration that the Messianic Jews had abandoned Torah observance and ordering their life according to God's Torah, but they were want, looking to apply it to Gentiles, which makes no sense. So here we have clearly the teaching of the of the council is that Gentiles were to be able to come to Yeshua faith solely by their faith trust in Yeshua, solely by their faith trust in the God of Israel, 
and they were to come and become righteous Gentiles. They did not need to convert to Judaism before or after coming to Yeshua faith. They could come to Yeshua faith as they were as Gentiles and become righteous Gentiles. And the Jewish followers of Yeshua were to continue to live their lives ordered by Torah, living their lives as faithful Jews. And these, these Gentiles were able to come to Yeshua faith and become faithful Gentiles, Gentiles following the God of Israel by their faith towards Yeshua as redeemed Gentiles and would not have to convert to Judaism, that they could be fully part of the people of God as redeemed Gentiles. The second truth we see in this, in this the Jerusalem Council ruling as the Jerusalem Council asserted that Gentiles coming to Yeshua faith could and should come to Yeshua as Gentiles. This is important. Second, the Jerusalem Council asserted that Gentiles coming to Yeshua faith could and should come to Yeshua faith as Gentiles. This is the mystery of the gospel, that through Yeshua, the way was open for Gentiles to join with the people of God but remain Gentiles. No longer would Gentiles need to convert to Judaism and observe circumcision for males and Torah observance for all. But now by trusting in Yeshua, Gentiles could become part of the people of God as Gentiles, as now righteous Gentiles, going from being pagan Gentiles to now righteous Gentiles, following the one God of Israel. The Jerusalem Council defended not only the unity of the now multinational people of God, but also the distinct responsibilities in relationship to the Torah for Jews and Gentiles. Let me read that again. The Jerusalem Council defended not only the unity of the now multinational people of God, but also the distinct responsibilities and relationship to the Torah for Jews and Gentiles. For Jews coming to Yeshua faith, they were accepting the Messiah of Israel, promised in the Tanakh, and continuing to live their lives ordered by the Torah commands. Messianic Jews were abandoning Judaism and Torah in coming to Yeshua faith, but they were embracing Israel's Messiah, which would include empowerment from the Spirit of God to grow in Torah living, as Yeshua righteous Messiah promised, which we read in Acts in John 14 where Yeshua said, if you love me, you will keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforting counselor like me, the spirit of truth to be with you forever. Were Gentiles coming to Yeshua faith, they were accepting the Messiah of Israel, promising the Tanakh and continuing to live as redeemed Gentiles. Unlike the Jewish followers of Yeshua, these Gentile Yeshua followers were not required to observe Torah faithful lives. Yet the Jerusalem Council pr provided basic ethical and moral com commands as a start, with apostolic teaching to further lead them to live as redeemed Gentiles. Thus, the Gentiles were included into the body of Messiah as Gentiles and did not require conversion to Judaism to be accepted. The Jerusalem Council set the basis or what Dr. Mark Kinzer has called the bilateral ecclesia, one body Messiah with two distinct ways of living Yeshua faith, the Jewish way of Torah observance for Messianic Jews and the Gentile way of freedom from Torah based solely on Yeshua faith. 
Such a model should be the basis for the 21st century body of Messiah as well. A Jewish Torah faithful messing in Judaism and a multinational Christianity consisting of the faithful from the nations who trust in Yeshua and live unbound to Torah observance. Let me read that again. These are powerful words. And a powerful understanding that we need to have for the future of Messianic Judaism. This model should be the basis for the modern 21st century body Messiah as well. A Jewish Torah faithful Messianic Judaism and a multinational Christianity consisting of the faithful from the nations who by trusting Yeshua live unbound to Torah commands. Rather than the unilateral view of all believers in Yeshua being free from Torah, as seen in much of the Christian teaching and commentaries on Acts 15, and the unilateral view of all Yeshua believers being subjected to Torah observance, as held by the Hebrew roots groups, the Jerusalem Council ratified faith in one Messiah Yeshua for all, and two ways of living Yeshua faith, one for Jews and one for Gentiles, distinct paths ground in a unified faith. Let me read that again. Rather than the unilateral view of all believers in Yeshua being free from the Torah, as seen in much of the church's teaching, and the unilateral view of all Yeshua believers being subjected to the Torah observance, as held by the Hebrew roots groups, the Jerusalem Council ratified faith in one Messiah, Yeshua, for all, and two ways of living Yeshua faith, one for Jews, a life of living according to Torah, and one for Gentiles, a life of faith alone in Yeshua, not bound to living as Jews. Two distinct paths grounded in one unified faith. Understood this way, the Jerusalem Council decision shows God's hand in both Judaism and Christianity. And the unity our Messiah called both Jew and Gentile followers to model while living as distinct communities with two important witnesses to our world of the Messiah, a Jewish Messianic community and a Gentile Messianic community in unity, lifting up the Messiah of Israel, living as distinct but unified communities, the Messianic Jewish community, the Messianic synagogue world, and the Christian world, those among the nations, the faithful to the God among the nations who embrace Yeshua as their Messiah and Lord. Two communities in one unified body of Messiah. The leaders of the Messianic community in Jerusalem stated clearly that Gentiles coming to Yeshua faith did not need to become Jews first before accepting Yeshua as Messiah, which would have required ritual circumcision for males and Torah observance for males and females. Instead, faith alone in the crucified and risen Yeshua was the only necessary entry step for those from the nation to join with the people of God. The Jewish people, together they followed the God of Israel and opened up the message of the Messiah and the God of Israel to the whole world. With the issue of Gentiles coming to Yeshua faith as Gentiles resolved, Paul is ready to bring his newly endorsed statement to the cities he visited in his previous mission to Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey. In Acts 16, 
Paul received a visit, a vision, that opened up the spread of the good news of Yeshua to Macedonia, modern-day Greece. And there we read, There a vision appeared to Shaul at night. A man from Macedonia was standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. As soon as he has seen the vision, we lost no time getting ready to leave for Macedonia, for we concluded that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. Let me read that again. This is the entry of the good news to Macedonia. There a vision appeared to Shaul at night. A man from Macedonia was standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. As soon as he had seen the vision, we lost no time getting ready to leave for Macedonia. We concluded that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. After experiencing this vision, Paul set out immediately to share the message of Yeshua with the people of Macedonia, modern-day Greece. In Acts 16.12, Paul comes to Philippi, a Roman colony and major city in Macedonia that was named after Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great. Emperor Augustus declared Philippi status as a Roman colony after Philippi had been the site of his and Mark Antony's victory over Brutus, Brutus and Cassius, the lead assassins of Julius Caesar in 42 BCE. Uh, the, the emperor, the first emperor Julius Caesar, was assassinated by the Roman Senate, and the lead, the lead assassins were, were two men, Brutus and Cassius. And they they fled to after after the assassination. They fled from Mark Antony to to uh, the outskirts of, of Philippi, and there Mark Antony, Mark Antony and Cassius, Mark Antony conquered them and and, and brought them brought them to to justice for their murdering of of uh, of Julius Caesar, and because of this, Augustus. Who was who was the 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 cohort of Mark Anthony who would have been became the emperor, and he declared this this city to be to be a Roman colony because of the fact that that the the ones who mur- who were lead murderers of Julius Caesar were were killed at this site near Philippi. Later near Philippi, Augustus would defeat Mark Anthony. Augustus will become become Caesar Augustus in 31 BCE, which guaranteed his place successor to Julius Caesar. So Augustus defeated defeated Anthony near Philippi, assuring his place as the one to be the follower, to be the the following leader to Julius Caesar, and has placed his place as Augustus Caesar. He named the city in honor of the Julian family calling it Colonia Iulia Augusta Philippensis. Although the majority of the populace of Philippi was Greek, the administration and political hierarchy were held by the Romans. The populace was mostly Greek, but as a Roman colony, the administration and political, political leadership of the community were Romans. The religion of Philippi included elements of Greek, Roman, Thracian, Egyptian, and other religions, including hero worship and the syncretic mixing of various religions, the mixing of something from Greek religion, something from Roman religion, something from the mystery cults, people would, would meld together 
different religion traditions, and this is called syncretism. Unlike most of the cities that Paul would visit on his missionary journeys, Philippi does not appear to have had a large enough Jewish community to support a synagogue. And we'll find out from archaeology, it wasn't until the 4th century of the Common Era until there are remains of a synagogue in Philippi. So, so there was not a, an established Jewish community with enough people, enough men to have a synagogue, which was different from the earlier communities that Paul visited, where he would always spend the first two weeks going first to the synagogue with the message of the Messiah and then turning to the Jewish populace. According to Acts 16.13, those who met for prayer on Shabbat met at the riverside, and the only worshipers mentioned were women. So it appears there were, there were, not, there were only women who were practicing Judaism that we know of from the biblical accounts. Interesting enough, Lydia, the one mentioned by name, is a God-fearer, which could mean that, she, that, that the Jewish worshipers of Philippi may have been made up of God-fearers, Gentile adherents to Judaism, without a local Jewish population. It's also possible some of the women were converts to Judaism, given that conversion to Judaism by Gentile women was easier for them as there was no circumcision involved, which was, was a deterrent for men, which resulted in more female conversions at this time. The following comments on Philippians 1.1, which we'll be looking at on Monday, support this possibility. Without concluding too much from silence, this is from Marcus Bachmel, a biblical scholar, commenting on, on chapter 1, verse 1, which we'll be looking at on Monday. He says, without concluding too much from silence, these observations do lend a heightened significance to the unusual presence of an exclusively or at any rate predominantly female Sabbath congregation. This phenomenon might well correspond to the common numerical predominance of women among proselytes and God-fearers, due partly to the absence of circumcision as a deterrent, and partly to the relatively more respected status of women within Judaism. The Messianic community in Philippi began with Lydia and her household coming to believe in Yeshua. By the inclusion of Paul's first visit to Philippi, which we see in Acts 16.40, a group of Yeshua followers appears to be meeting at Lydia's house, which would be would be the beginning of the Philippian Messianic community, basically the first the first congregation, the first house house church in Philippi was in Lydia's house. Lydia's house was the first, according to Acts sixteen, was the first grouping of Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles in Philippi, and we see this as the inclusion of the letter and that Lydia was involved in being one of the first leaders among the Messianic Jewish community in Philippi. Now some insights on the actual writing of the letter, the background of the letter, and an introduction to the letter itself. We've looked for, first here at the background of the letter, specifically the Jerusalem Council ruling and the, int, the, the entry of Gentiles as righteous Gentiles into the people of God, into following Messiah Yeshua as Gentiles, which opened up the message of the gospel to the Gentile world, and Paul here going to Philippi, entering into the European content, continent, which at that point going west was the uttermost parts of the world that Yeshua spoke about. But they had brought the message to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, 
and now entering into the European continent, the message of the Messiah, the good news of the Messiah, is being preached in the uttermost parts of the world. So some background on the letter itself. Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians from Rome, probably in about 62 of the Common Era, during his final imprisonment, as recorded in Acts 28, 14-31. Philippians is one of four books written by Paul, which are known as the prison epistles or the prison letters, which include Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. All four letters were written from prison, and based on the above, what we've looked at, it is held that all four letters written from Paul's prison imprisonment in Rome, which we read about in Acts 28, 30-31, which reads, Shaul remained two years in a place he rented for himself, and he continued receiving all who came to see him, openly without hindrance, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. So the understanding of this book was written during his final imprisonment, his last two years of life. At the end of this, these two years was to be his execution under Nero. So in his, in his final days, his final year of life, he wrote these letters to the communities in Ephesia, Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi. And the letter to Philemon was also written to Colossae because Philemon, Philemon was, was written about an issue in Colossae. The final imprisonment, this was his, his final imprisonment of many before his execution by Nero. And he was under house arrest where he was confined to a rented room for the last two years of his life. The Rome was a place of writings based on the historic understanding from church history up until the end of the 18th century, and also internal references in Philippians to the whole palace in chapter 1, verse 13, and the emperor's household in Philippians 4.22. Also noteworthy is the severe nature of Paul's impending judgment, mentioned in Philippians 1, 19-23 where Paul is speaking about his death being imminent and that execution was a possibility. Meaning he would be facing the emperor as judge, who would be the one who would give the ruling that he was to be executed, to give the word for his execution to go forward. This making Rome the only location for the writing of the letter. Some modern scholars, such as N.T. Wright, one of the, one of the important, important uh, New Testament scholars, specifically in Pauline studies, has proposed that either Caesarea or Ephesus would be the location of the writing of this letter. There are other scholars that understood the late nature of the letter, which also points to Rome. Based on evidence from the letter, including the more advanced Christology, the more advanced understanding of the divine nature of Yeshua, which is mentioned in, in chapter 2's Messianic Hymn, and also Paul's reference to elders and deacons, which would indicate a formalized structure of leadership in Philippi, considered to be a later development in the Messianic communities that Paul planted. This comedy considers Rome to be the place of writing. Many scholars believe this letter is a combination of two or even three letters Paul sent to Philippi that have been edited into one letter. So there's understanding by modern scholars that this that what we have today in our Bibles, in our in our Brichat Shahs, is a combination of multiple letters, given that there are various seem to be ending points. Paul even using the, the word conclusion at se several points throughout the book, though he continued on in, in both of 
for the third and the fourth chapter there. In the third chapter, though there are four chapters in the book, there's it starts out with the words in conclusion. So there are those those scholars who believe that what we have today in our Bibles, in our New Testaments, in our Brihasha of the letter to Philippi, the letter to Philippians, is actually two, three, or even four letters that Paul sent to Philippi that were later edited together into one, one letter. Apostle Breakdown of this letter into three letters is seen as following the first letter as chapter 4, verses 10 through 20, Paul's thanks to the Philippians for their gifts. A second, at for chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, chapter 1. And 4, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And, and chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. Warning against division being the second letter. And a third letter being chapter 3, verses 2, through chapter 4, verses 3. And chapter four, verse eight through nine, an attack on false teachers. So those who, who who understand this as being three letters that were edited together see three distinct themes. One, Paul's thanks for, to the Philippians for their gifts. A second theme, warning about division, and a third third theme, warning against an, against false teachers, an attack on false teachers. And this was something that was understood by Carson and Moo when they're introduction to the New Testament, D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo, two prominent Christian Christian New Testament scholars. Carson and Moo's proposed three letters that are combined into our current one letter may seem odd. Is not three letters combined into one, but sections of three letters combined together, as we see from the portions being from separated into chapters of this book. This can be understood as modern scholars seeing the three letters being written on one theme. Letter one on the Philippians' gift, letter two on division in the community, that is covered in all four chapters, and left and letter three, confronting false teachers, that is the focus of chapter three. The Greek word that Paul used for letter is plural, letters, which can bolster those, those scholars and biblical interpreters who see Paul's letter to the Philippians as a combination of letters to the Philippians. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul took the common Hellenistic letter format and used it as a source of instruction and teaching in the early Messianic community. Paul used the standard Hellenistic Greek letter format, common in the day, to, to transmit teaching and theological teaching, in essence, using the, the form of communication of his day. In essence, he's using the, you know, the text, the text messaging of, of, of his day, the, 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 the form of communication that was, that was common to people, the, that using, using the common formation of, of the, the Hellenistic, the Greek letter format, he used it to, to rather than just sending, sending communication on secular issues, he used it as a way of communicating the gospel. He used the, in essence, the technology of his day, the Greek letter format, to to give teaching on Messiah Yeshua. In so doing, Paul transformed a mode, primary, personal, secular communication, into a tool for expanding the work of the gospel, and transmitting the message of messianic theology and thought. As one of the early church leaders and writers, Polycarp was a student of the Apostle John, 
admired how Paul taught in person and thought and through writing, which he interestingly wrote about in his own Philippian letter, known as the Epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians. And Polycarp, a disciple of, of the Apostle John, wrote, For neither I nor any other, other such one can come up to the wisdom of the blessed and glorified Paul. He, when among you, accurately and steadfastly taught the word of truth in the presence of those who were then alive, and when absent from you, he wrote you a letter. While originally targeted to particular congregations, Paul's letters also served as teaching tools for other communities. As we see documented in Paul's letter to the Colossians, <coughs> excuse me, Paul's letter to the Colossians, where he can, instructs the, the, the people in Colossae to share their letter with the Messianic community in Laodicea. In Colossians 4.16, we read, After this letter has been read to you, have it read also in the congregation of the Laodiceans, and you in turn are to read the letter that will come from Laodicea. Though we don't have the letter, letter to the Laodiceans, which was sent to Colossae, Paul here instructs that there was a letter to Laodicea that has been lost to time, and he instructs the letter to Colossae to be read by them and then sent on to, to Laodicea, and the Laodiceans' letter to be sent to Colossae. So Paul originally wrote these letters to specific communities, but also because of the deep teaching about the Messiah within them. He also instructed them to be read and then passed on to other communities. And we are today living as ones who are reading th these words, which were written so many years ago. In essence, it, with, with the transmission of, of the scriptures today, we are continuing that tra tradition of reading these letters that were sent to Philippi nearly 2,000 years ago, which we are reading today and studying today. We'll be looking at verse by verse starting on Monday. Moreover, nearly 2,000 years later, Paul's letters are studied today and continue to teach each new generation of Yeshua's followers. Paul's letter reveals several main purposes and themes. First, Paul was motivated to write to the Philippians to thank them for the gifts they had sent him upon hearing he was in Rome. Second, Paul expressed gratitude for his relationship with the Philippians, the shared love for Paul for the Philippians, and theirs for Paul defined their relationship. This mutual love is reflected in Paul's personal letter, focusing on his encouragement of and thankfulness for his dear friends in the Methodist community in Philippi. Within the personal context of Paul, he writes openly about his imprisonment and lauds the work of Timothy and Epaphroditus as behalf of him for the Philippian community. Finally, building on the Philippians' closeness and mutual affection for Paul, he speaks of them as their spiritual leader, calling them to un unity grounded in humility, the kind of humility exemplified in the life of Yeshua, life and death of Yeshua described in Philippians 2, the Messianic hymn. Paul urged humility by the Philippians, calling them to unite as an example for Yeshua, thereby continuing to spread the good news of the Messiah. As we'll see through our study throughout the book of Philippians, there's this ongoing theme that runs throughout the whole book of humility, that humility and self-sacrifice, modeling Yeshua, righteous Messiah, is to be the life of the Talmud of Yeshua. As one who is a disciple of Yeshua, to truly be a disciple of Yeshua means one who lives a life of humility, a life of humble service to the God of Israel, a life of self-sacrifice, modeling Yeshua, who is the greatest example of humility, the greatest example of self-sacrifice. 
as we'll see in the Messianic hymn in chapter two, we see Yeshua, the divine Messiah, who left the heavenlies into our world humbly as a baby, born in humble situations, living a life of humility, dying the death of a slave on the Roman cross, resurrecting the dead, to be exalted to the heavenlies, and to be the one to be the bearer of the divine name, and the one to which every knee will bow, both in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. The whole cosmos will one day acknowledge Yeshua the Messiah as Lord of all, because of his life of humility, his willingness to, to lay down his life for the atonement. Because of that, he was given the highest place and the name that is above all names. And he is our example. We are to follow in his life of humility, his model of humility, to become more and more and more in the Messiah. And we'll be looking, starting on Monday, verse by verse, this letter to the Philippians, taking these words that Paul wrote over, over 1,900 years ago, almost 2,000 years ago, to the people of Philippi and applying them to our lives, seeing what it meant to them was understood within a Messianic Jewish theological concept and how we can apply these words for our lives to be like Paul, one who emulates the Messiah, and for us in our Messianic communities and our churches to become congregations of people who are more and more and more in the Messiah. That is our calling, to become more like our Messiah. He is our Lord, he's our master, and we should conform ourselves to his image. And that's what Messianic Jewish life is about, is living life following the Messiah of Israel. And that's what we're all about here, a letter to Philippi. So as I said, that will conclude our background introduction to the book of Philippians. And tomorrow will be start on tomorrow, tomorrow Shabbos. On Monday, we'll be looking at Philippians chapter one, verse one, Paul's Paul's opening words to the letter to Philippi, his opening words to the people of Philippi, which means so much to him. And he, as their teacher, is sharing about their new life in the Messiah and how they were to stand in the humility of the Messiah and stand against those who are preaching other words that were given to them by the Messiah. So we'll be looking at that on, on Monday as we continue our study, going into our fifth time, going verse by verse, to Paul's letter to the Philippians, starting on Monday at 12 p.m. of time, 1 p.m. Phoenix time, 2 p.m. Chicago time, 3 p.m. Orlando time, and 10 p.m. Jerusalem time. And for those who are yet to enter Shabbos, I give you a Shabbat Shalom. For our brothers and sisters in Israel, they are already in Shabbos, so they are already there, dwelling in the peace of Shabbos. For those here in the U.S., we're yet to enter Shabbat. It will be later today at sundown. So I give you a Shabbat Shalom. Good Shabbos, everyone. And I look forward to seeing you back on Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific time as we begin again going through Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, the opening words to Paul's letter to the Philippians, here on Letter to Philippi Live, a daily broadcast of Letter to Philippi, a new Messian Jewish theological teaching organization. You can find out more information at our website, lettertophilippi.org, 1L, 2Ps in Philippi. There you can watch past class videos. You can leave a prayer request. You can ask any questions for us. We have a contact form. You can make a much-needed contribution to our work on our giving link. We are an independently funded organization. We're not a part of any larger organization. We are. We receive only the gifts that are received from you, those who watch our broadcasts and read our materials. 
And we appreciate those who can help our work by making a contribution, either one time or you can set up a monthly contribution, which we greatly appreciate it, to keep this work going. We also have our statement of faith and our, our mission statement, what we believe here at Letter to Philippi, and our mission statement, what we seek to do here at Letter to Philippi, a new Messian Jewish theological teaching organization. My name is Sean Imsley. I'm the founder of Letter to Philippi, and I'm the teacher of this class. And if you have any questions, or any prayer requests, want to support our work, go to lettertophilippi.org. Thank you for watching. Shalom.